Thank you, Wendy and team leading us. Um, I think we've never sung as loud as when they made that little mistake. And isn't that lovely singing, your grace is enough when, we, when things go wrong. They're a great team, aren't they? Why don't we thank them? I just want to let you know too, one, one more thing in your uh, news sheets today is this brochure. Um, it's got in it Mission Watch, which is our, our uh, ministry area of the church that uh, helps keep us as a whole church focused on mission constantly. And, and so it's not just a group doing that, but this group helping us all to be mission focused. Underneath is a picture of Global Interactions, uh, who are the Baptist uh, mission um, arm of the Baptist Union and under that African enterprise. And you'll see it says May is Mission Month, but it's been crossed out and June is Mission Month because this year we're being radical and we're going against all the other Baptist churches and having it in June. <laughs> Don't you like that? But on the inside, it says in the inside middle, May is Mission Month. So just defiantly cross that out across the top and put May's Mission Month on, on the top of that. Oh, June, June, <laughs> June. Thanks. People are even defiant down there yelling out at me. What I should, no, that's good. In it, this is just giving you an update, a lot of the things that are happening in terms of mission. And I read this and thought, this is fantastic. It'd be great if every one of you could just read this because it's not only talking about what we as a church are planning on contributing to in June uh, this year, it also talks about the different relationships that we have um, with global interaction and it also talks about what the five, Mission Watch five-year strategy plan is and uh, the, the, way, the people that we um, are connected with. So it's just a great way to understand what where's the church are thinking about when it comes to mission. And it's also got some opportunities where you can attend. First one is tonight coming along 630 um, to uh, hear Mark give a message called Unearthed tonight, so that'll be great. Um, I wonder um, this morning, if you're a parent, have you ever, um, since becoming a parent, gone out, just the two of you, you know, a husband and wife? And if you do, normally you'll go and get people called babysitters to look after your kids. Now, have you ever come to the situation where you've sat down together and you've thought, who, who will we get to babysit our kids? I just want to give you feedback. Is that a big deal, who you get to look after your kids or not? Yep. It is, isn't it? Uh, some of the things that goes through your mind are things like, is this person someone I can trust with my kids? Are they got the kind of character that... I know that if my kids start breaking things or they're going to be able to cope, you know, or are they the kind of ones that I have, you know, confidence in? If you're a parent and you're looking for babysitters, whether you can trust them is a big question. Uh, if you're planning on getting married and you're thinking about who will I marry, you know, like the question is who will I spend the rest of my life with uh, every day talking to, conversing, discussing, making decisions with, who will I marry? How big a question thing that is? Big question, isn't it? Uh, when, you, when you come to make that decision, it, it's pretty important to just not make a decision while you're in the ooh, in love stage, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you've got to use the heart 
but you've got to use the head too, don't you? And you've got to think, is this the kind of person who has the kind of character and the kind of traits and, and is the, the kind of person that I could spend my life married to? You know, it, there are a lot of people that have made poor decisions in that area. And I'll never forget reading an article years ago about a man uh, who lived in Melbourne and was married to his wife, and he started to just get jealous of her, for, for real, no apparent reason. And he started to say, you're not allowed out of the house. And he started to you know, suspect that she'd been calling people. And in the end, this man got more and more possessive and, and uh, jealous of his wife that he ended up pouring petrol all over her and setting her alight. And you think, that was a pretty dramatic situation. But the question of who we married is, is crucial, isn't it? And on this side of the marriage decision, we'd just be crazy to take that decision lightly. And when it comes to who will you trust your life to? You know, who will you worship? Who, who will you place in the highest place in your life? The question is also crucial. And when we come to think about it, uh, today many of us have already committed our lives to Christ. We've already given our lives to God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who the Bible says is good, the God who, uh, who the Bible talks about, it just says God is love. You know, everything about him is love. His character is good, he's love, he's, he's good, he's kind, he's fair. And we've put our trust in him. We've understood that he made the heavens and the earth. He sent his own dear son to come into this world, to die on a cross, and that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and believe that his death on the cross was taking upon himself our sin, when we put our trust and faith in him, we believe that God forgives us, that he comes to live within us, to have a relationship with us. His Holy Spirit fills us and we live each day with his power and strength. We have entrusted our life to this God. Made a decision. Some of you today might never have made that decision. You might be here for the first time and one of the valid questions for you to be asking this morning is what kind of God would I be putting my trust in, my whole faith in, if I was going to make him my God, my Lord and my Saviour? If I was going to acknowledge who he is, what kind of God is he? Is he good? Is he fair? And for many Christians who make that decision, sometimes we make it all excitedly and we, we, we sometimes believe that by putting our faith in God, it means that he's just going to look after us. And it's not too long after we've made the decision to put our faith in God through faith in Jesus Christ that we find that our marriage, which was having struggles, doesn't suddenly get better. Or sometimes we might put our faith in Jesus and our, we lose our job. Or, or, or sometimes we put our trust in Jesus and we suddenly realise that the little pain that was going on in our stomach is worse than we first expected. And in the midst of that, we might start to ask questions about the character or the person, who this God is that we've served, 
that we've given our whole life to. Because if we've put our trust in him, why would he allow us to go through struggles? When we ask him to fix them, why doesn't he answer our prayer, it seems? And, and when we keep praying and trying to ask for him to show us, you know, why it is that we're going through these struggles, why does it seem that he doesn't care? He's not telling us where. And many people who have put their faith and trust in God and face headlong into suffering find themselves asking these questions. Does God care? Because if he does, why isn't he explaining why this is happening? Why isn't he helping me out of this? Why isn't he, you know, why isn't he, why don't I feel him right here now? And sometimes in the midst of suffering, we can feel all alone and feel like God doesn't care. It's the first question many people ask in the midst of suffering. Second question many people ask in the midst of suffering is, is God powerful? Is he really powerful? Because if he is, and I've put my faith in him, and I pray and ask him to make my better marriage better, to help me not lose my job, to, to not be sick, and he doesn't answer, then if he's powerful, what's wrong? And many people in the midst of suffering who have given their lives to Christ start to doubt whether God really is as powerful as they thought he was. Third, third, so God... Do you care? Are you powerful? And the third question that, that people really uh, often ask is, are you fair? Are you fair? Like, I mean, often in the midst of suffering, we can look and we can say, God, I love you. I've given my life to you. I want to worship you. I want to serve you. I want to give all that I have to you. And yet there's a person right here who doesn't like you. In fact, they hate you. And in fact, they don't want any time to do with you. And they're living a horrible life and they're treating others completely the opposite. Some people are being you know, promiscuous or lying or cheating or hurting or abusive. And yet they seem to be getting a better job. They seem to be not getting sicker but healthier. And you start to say, God, are you the kind of God that is just or not really? And people ask those questions in the midst of suffering. And they're valid questions because we want to know if our God is the God who is good and loving and powerful and who cares. Does God care? Can God do anything? Is he all-powerful and is he just? Well, you know so far from the story that Job uh, has been hit with uh, tragedy after tragedy that God has allowed Satan to inflict on Job. And you know that he went from being really prosperous and having a, a large family to losing all of that in, in one day. And then you know that God and Satan had another discussion and uh, Satan sort of said, yeah, you're right, Job has still trusted you, even though we took all those material things away from him and his physical, you know, the family and everything. But he wouldn't trust you if we actually inflicted him with harm himself. You know, then he'd, he'd doubt you, he'd turn away. So God says, go ahead, but don't kill him. 
And the next scene, he's got sores all over him. And he's got, you know, on the ash heap outside the city, he's got pots of clay and he's scraping them off because he's in such pain and agony. And we see that in the midst of this, his wife says, Job, curse God and die. You know, look, look what, just, just admit that, that you've, you've got to curse God and die, be put to death and be over with it. This is too much to bear. And Job says, you know, don't be silly. You know, we're just going to accept good things and not bad things from God. And in the midst of suffering, he praises God. And you remember we looked and we said, you know, God delights when he sees his people trusting him and praising him in the midst of suffering, praising him in the storm. And you remember that while he's sitting there in all this agony, he has some friends who come and initially they do the right thing and they, they sit around and they empathise with him. But then when they start to talk after seven days of quietness, we remembered saying, you know, with friends like these, who needs enemies, you know? These guys were just laying it on thick to Job, who's, you know, almost at his bottom anyway, and then they, they just keep telling him, you know, Job, you must have sinned, you know, so repent from your sin and everything's going to be all right. And Job keeps saying to them, you know, I haven't sinned. I, there's no sin that this is a punishment for. I've always sought to live a, a godly life before God. And so in the midst of his wife, in the midst of his friends, Job maintains his integrity. But while you're there, if you have your Bible, why don't we turn just quickly to Job 27. I just want, to notice, want you to notice one of his responses. Job chapter 27 and verse 2. Psalms in the middle of the Bible, one, one book left is Job. Job 27 and verse 2. Look what he says here. He says, in the midst of a discourse... Uh, he says, as surely as God lives, who has denied me my justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness and my tongue will utter no deceit. So here Job is saying, God, you have treated me unjustly. You know, he's asking the Third question kind of here. But he's still not turning away from his faith in God. He's still saying, I will still you know, not speak badly about you. I will not doubt you. I'm still trusting. I won't do wickedness. But God, you've treated me unjustly. And uh, in a few chapters uh, later on, Elihu responds to Job. Uh, he starts in chapter 32 And he says to him, uh, in essence, he says, Job, I want to let you know that by saying um, that this suffering that is coming to you is from God and he's causing you to suffer so that he may humble you and so that he may actually teach you uh, to trust in him and and to humble you before him. Now, it's true that God sometimes uses suffering to teach us and to disciple us. Actually, often we grow stronger through suffering and God can use suffering to help us grow. And this is what Elihu's saying. He's saying that. Uh, But it's only partially true. 
See, Elihu didn't know the whole reason, and so he's just assuming that this is the reason. Now, often it's used, but it's only partially true. And as, as the dialogues have been going, you know, the three friends have been talking and it's been getting, you know, more and more heat as it goes on. And Job gives this big response saying, you know, oh, God, you haven't treated me justly, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And then he gives this big, long Elu replies and says, Job, Job, you know, God is, is, is causing you to uh, suffer so that he's discipling you. You know, just acknowledge that he is God and you're not. And, and just come under that. Right in the midst, it sort of heats right up to this point. And it's almost like if you've ever been to an AFL football game, have you ever been to one of those? Sorry to bring this up all the time, you New South Wales people. If you've ever been to a rugby game where the Melbourne Storm are playing, <laughs> no. But if you've ever been to a, a footy game, I've been there in the midst, and have you ever noticed that there's one person that everybody's unhappy with? <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel sorry for the guy in white because the Hawthorne t play, you know, people are going crazy. You know, you're, uh, you're against us, unfair, unjust, unjust. And then the other team that we're playing, you know, are always, oh, you're unfair, you're unfair. And this guy is, tr is making decisions. He's working it out, but everyone's unhappy with him. And it would be almost like one time in AFL, I should imagine, if he makes a terrible decision... And everyone goes, that's unfair, boo, boo. And all of a sudden, it, he just blows his whistle and the whole crowd hushes. And he walks from the centre of the ground, goes over the fence, up to row six, six seats across, and he says, would you like to do what I'm doing? Here's the whistle. Can you imagine that happening? I bet the umpires feel like doing that every single week. But, you know, in Job here, in a funny sort of way, not, not really, it's a poor example, really, but the, you get the idea, the argument has been coming on and all of a sudden it's like God blows his whistle right in the midst of it and he begins to speak. We've been waiting so long for God to speak in Job, haven't we? I mean, he's been sitting there saying, God, what's going on? What's happening? Don't you care? You know, you're treating me unjust. And I know for many of you, in the midst of suffering, sometimes you feel that so acutely. You know, God, do you understand? Do you really care? God, why aren't you doing anything about this? God, are you really being fair in this? And here, in this, in this part, actually, chapter 38... God begins to speak. And interestingly, he doesn't say to people, to Job, you know, here I am in your court. Let me take on all your questions. Let me, um, you know, put me on the stand and you trial me, you know, put me under trial. No, he's God. And he answers Job out of the storm, chapter 38, verse 1 says, and he said, who is it that darkens my counsel? Words without knowledge. In other words, you know, you don't come, I don't come before you, you come before me. And then, then he says these words, he says, brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. In verse 
38 is some of the most, uh, chapter 38 and 39 are some of the most incredible poetry um, that have ever been written. Uh, many people have said this kind of two chapters here as far as literary uh, writing is remarkable. It's wisdom literature and it's incredible. Uh, let me just read some of what God says to, to Job who's saying, are you really being fair? Are you treating me justly? And he says this. Let me read from verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who set up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment, when I wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? Notice God's focusing on the heavens here in these verses. Uh, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that I might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and, they, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of Death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, of the snow, or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I preserve for times of trouble or for days of war or battle? In, in these times, God is saying, let me just amaze you. Let me explain to you the complexity and the intricacy of all the things that I've created. Let me just tell you a few things about the sky and the heavens and let me tell you about the way in which it was created and held together. Have you en ever entered into these storehouses? Have you ever seen the things that I've seen? He sort of takes Job around creation and lets him marvel at the wonder of it all. I think... In 38, it's just an incredible, incredible passage. And then he moves on at the end in, in chapter 38 and verse 39 to instead of talking about creation, but talking about now the animals. And he talks about the different ways in which they, they live. And it'd be good just to read some more of this too so you get to see the poetic nature of it. This is what God says from verse 39 of 38. Do you hunt the, the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions? 
when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labour pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? On and on he goes, talking about the creation that he's made and God's intimate knowledge of it all and his care of it all. Look at this funny little bit down here. talks about a funny little animal that God's made. In verse 13, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare to the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground, lets them warm in the sun, unmindful that the foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample on them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labour was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom. I think God's sort of saying, the ostrich is a little bit dumb, you know. <laughs> or give her a share of good sense, yes. When she, when, yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and the rider. Then it talks about the horse and its incredible strength and its power. And God is just ta- taking Job and saying, do you notice all the questions? You know, do you, have you ever, do you understand have you ever thought about it? You know, sort of saying to Job, just remember, I'm God. I created all this. I know all this. I understand all this. And, you know, to the answer that we might have when we're in the midst of our suffering, does God care? Oh, God's not just saying he cares. He made it all. And he's intimately aware of the ostrich and the horse of the way in which the seasons come and go. And God is taking Job just to remind him about who God is and who Job is. The answer to does God care in the midst of my suffering? Yeah, he knows what's going on. He actually made you, Job. (laughs) You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. And he knows what he's doing, even if it might feel like he doesn't. So in chapters 38 and 39, God God shows him that he does care. Then as we look in chapter 40 here, uh, what we see is, is God continuing now to speak. And the Lord said to Job, finally, after explaining those things, that he does really care, that he made creation, that he he knows it, he understands it, and he does care about it. In, In chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Job, what are you going to say about that now? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then this is how Job answered the Lord. I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you, God. I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job was silenced 
by God's response. In uh, verse 41, uh, chapter 41, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry, 15, uh, Job 40 and verse 15. God continues to speak and in this time he now goes on to talk about not only does he care but he is powerful. Remember the second question that we often ask when we're suffering is can God do anything about this anyway? And look what God says. It's interesting. He says look at the behemoth. Have you ever seen a behemoth lately at the zoo? No? No one's got one at home? Probably good for you. Um, the NIV note uh, says uh, in my Bible, possibly the hippopotamus or the elephant. But then you read on and you see that his tail sways like a cedar. Have you ever seen an elephant's tail swaying like a cedar? It looks, it's a very small tail, big animal, small tail. And the hippopotamus, you know, it's got just a little flap at the back. So some people, the NIV says about the tail that it probably could be that it means a trunk and this might be an elephant or a hippopotamus. And there are some people that say, no, 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 you know what this is? This is a dinosaur. And what they're saying is this is uh, kind of showing that the dinosaurs did exist with men in the earliest days of, of, of the Bible. And many people, have they've looked and they've looked at the description, they say, this might be a Brachiosaurus. Why don't we read and find out what we think? Look at the behemoth. The point God's saying is, I'm powerful. I made these things, whatever they are, you know. Look at the behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins. What power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. His, the sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God. What a creature this must have been. Yet his maker can approach him with his sword. The point that God is making here is clearly is the behemoth. I made him. You're afraid of him. I made him. I'm more powerful than him. Then God keeps going. Verse 41, he says, Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook? Can you? Have you ever tried it? Don't know what their Leviathan is. We don't have them at the zoo today, apparently. But the NIV text again says it's possibly the crocodile. Uh, again, uh, people uh, have said, as we look at this, it seems to be more like a dragon. There seems to be, like, fire coming out of its nose and, and doing things like that. And people are saying, again, this could be an early um, kind of dinosaur uh, as well. And this could be what it is. So look what, what Job says. Can you pull the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? He will keep begging you for, will he keep begging you for mercy? On and on. It says down in verse 9, and any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. What an awesome creature. Verse 14, who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed with his fearsome teeth? Uh, black, he, he, sorry, his back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is close to the next. 
so close to the next that no air can pass between them. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together. They cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from the boiling pot over a fire. His breath sets coals ablaze and his flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. This is a wild thing. Wouldn't want to meet this down in Wodonga any night. But God is saying, the Leviathan, I made him. And you know what? I'm more powerful than him. You know, the question that often happens in the midst of us when we're in the midst of suffering is we say, does God care? And God answered that. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He, he made us. He's infinitely aware and he knows Second thing is, is are God able to do anything? I think what God's saying in this passage is just have a look at any creature you want to look at on earth that is powerful and I made it. The blue whale. You know, the, the b- biggest animal you can think about. I made it. And I can do anything. In the midst of your suffering, if you think I'm not at work and I'm not able to do anything, think again. You know, I think uh, for us, it's, it's good to think in this world about our own life because sometimes in the midst of suffering we can think, oh, even God can't change my situation. Well, he can. And the fact that he's not might mean that you probably just better accept that and learn how he's going to help you, how you can you know, respond to him in the midst of it. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things that that we see today in our world. You know, we talk about the greenhouse uh, effect and how our, our world is melting, you know, and, and many people uh, respond with incredible panic because, you know, the world's like on this earth and it, it's the temperatures are changing so we might all be fried or frozen uh, if things happen this way. And look, you know what? We're stewards of this earth. We have to do everything we can to steward our world and to make it a better place. I think we should. But but I think to think that we're all going to fry if we don't take control of our future. Hear me, I'm not saying we shouldn't be greenies. I think we should be really conservative and helping to conserve what our, our earth. But to think that God's not in control of even that is just not to remember that God put him there. You know what I'm saying in that? Uh, And I think that goes for everything in our lives. The call for us is to always remember that God is all-powerful. The final kind of thing that we often say in the midst of suffering is, is is God just? And if you have a look at the text, I just want you to go to... Uh, Job 40 and verses 6 to 14 and look what he says there the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm he said brace yourself like a man I will question you and you shall answer me Who, uh, would you discredit my justice would you condemn me to justify yourself They're big words that God says. You know, Job, are you going to say that I'm unjust so so that 
you can justify yourself? Are you going to even say that God who made the heavens and the earth is not fair? And then he says, do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? And then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honour and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury him in all the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. I think God is saying, don't think I'm unjust. I am just. I can bring down the proud. I can exalt the humble. I can do anything. So just trust that I am just. I think Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, for your ways are not my ways, your ways are higher than my ways. God's saying, you know, to us, he's saying, you might not understand it all, but believe me, I'm a just God. And I know what is happening and what's going on. So when we look at why the bad things happen to good people, well, we don't always know, but we do know that God is just and people who are bad will be judged, even if we don't see it. But God, but God, no, hold on. I'm God, you're not, he says. I'm just and I'll take care of that. Uh, but, but God, it's not fair because they, they're doing so well and they seem to be going ahead all the time and they just keep getting more and more and I'm trying to serve you and I'm getting less and, I'm, and nothing says you're going right. It's all right. I'm just and I'll take care of that. You know, I think we forget that uh, God knows what he's doing and what can seem unjust to us, to God makes perfect sense and he's working out his purposes. What seemed unjust, what happened on Calvary, seemed to be the most unjust thing we've ever seen. People spat and hurled at Jesus and said, how dare you, what can you do? You know, why did you do that? We're going to crucify you, Jesus. We're going to put you to death. And yet that very act was what brought us life. The very death of his own son saved the whole world, made it possible for each person to come to him. And in the midst of your suffering, you might not know what's happening, but you can know that God is just. Finally, I'm just about to finish now, the end, the very last bit of Job, is kind of a little bit amusing. Because you know what we've learnt all the time? Just before we move off the justice point, God treats the friends justly. He says in this passage in the epilogue, verse uh, verse 7, you know, um, I'm angry with you. And you know what he says to them? You are wrong. And now you have to go and ask uh, for, you know, give a sacrifice. And you have to go to Job and ask Job to pray for you. And then he'll forgive. Isn't that justice? You know, Job's sitting there. And now God says, now you have to go to Job and... He'll pray for you and I'll accept his prayer and forgive you uh, because of Job's prayer. Sort of honouring Job, bringing justice about as well. And then at the end, it kind of says in verse 12, which you thought it wouldn't because 
It's kind of like a fairy tale ending for Job because all the time we've been realizing, you know, good things do happen to people, to bad, bad things do happen to good people, and it doesn't always work out, and we've got to accept that. And then, just as we get to accept that, it says here, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And the first daughter, he named Jemima. The second, Keziah. And the third, um, you can read that one yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived a hundred years. And for 140 years, he saw his children and their children of the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years, and he all lived happily ever after. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if that could happen in all of our lives? You know, the point is not, if you trust God, uh, everything will work out fine in this life. The point is that God does care He is all-powerful and he is just. So if you look to him in the midst of your suffering, God will reward you. This life? Don't know. Wouldn't guarantee it always. Many people have died uh, in the midst of suffering who have had great faith. But there will be a reward. God has promised that he does see every act. He does see every time you trust him in the midst of suffering. And he will reward your faithfulness to him. Why? Because he's just. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for speaking to us through Job and through your word. God, thank you that in the midst of suffering, we can know that you do care. Oh God, that brings us comfort. God, that in the midst of suffering, that you are in control. That helps us, God, just to know that you could end at any moment and we just accept this as as what you're part of. And God, we thank you finally that you are just. And we just at this time again say, God, there's no one else we would want to give our whole lives to. We trust your character, your faithfulness, and your greatness, God. And we want to just commit ourselves now to worshipping you and living our days in the midst of suffering, in the midst of good times, whatever we face, to give you our all. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. In these moments, just love you right where you are.